Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who blinks vertically and has a prison in Russia named after him. That sounds good. I didn't know. Tell <laughs> us about that. You're writing the joke from now on, buddy. I'm actually not allowed to talk about that. Oh, of course not. Yeah, so you got a lot going on right now. But uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into this. I'm doing good. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful sunny day here in the St. Louis metropolitan area. The Cardinals are one of the worst teams in baseball, so I know that will probably make a lot of you happy. Yeah, but they start out like that a lot. When they do poorly early, then they usually make it into the postseason. Yeah, they're like 9 and 20. Oh, God, I didn't know it was that bad. Okay. <laughs> well, people are happy about the MLS team. That's and true. Battle Hawks are back, so there's there's some good. <laughs> Tell them what they need to know. Oh, the easiest way and the best way for us to spread like a fungus and grow is for you to share us with friends, family, anybody that you think might be interested, and interact with us on social media you can email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com you can find us on tiktok at cryptic underscore podcast and youtube at surprise surprise cryptic podcast and shout out to parabox as always they have 
great t-shirts, great designs. Jay wears them all the time. I don't wear them all the time, but they are exactly the kind of shirt I usually call out. I did something like it today. Like, hey man, like your shirt. Because everybody likes hearing that, right? And you want to be that guy with that shirt that somebody says like, oh, that's really cool. I love that Skinwalker shirt or the Area 51 or the, you know, Montauk shirt, whatever it is. Anyway, what are we talking about tonight, Ryan? You're talking about simulation hypothesis. The simulation hypothesis suggests that our entire existence is a simulated reality, possibly a computer simulation. This hypothesis is closely related to various other skeptical scenarios throughout the history of philosophy. The current form of the hypothesis was popularized by Nick Bostrom, and its compatibility with all human perceptual experiences is thought to have significant epistemological consequences in the form of philosophical skepticism. Versions of this hypothesis have also appeared in science fiction as a central plot device in numerous stories and films. And stick with us, guys, because we are going to break this down and simplify it quite a bit. We just wanted mm -hmm. to make sure we got through the actual hypothesis for you nerds out there. <laughs> right, just kidding. Right. <laughs> Bostrom's popularized hypothesis is highly disputed. Theoretical physicist Sabine Hossenfelder... Oh man, that's a really satisfying name to say for some reason. It must be of that little <laughs> bit of German blood I've got in me. Has labeled it pseudoscience, and cosmologist George F.R. Ellis stated that the hypothesis is totally impractical from a technical viewpoint and that proponents seem to have confused science fiction with science. Late night pub discussion is not a viable theory. I think that these naysayers maybe haven't dug into it as much as they should have because we're going to go over some of the counter arguments but I, I mean they all have holes and something tells me that Mr. George F.R. Ellis doesn't <laughs> sound like the kind of guy that probably has played a lot of Grand Theft Auto hmm. The underlying thesis that reality is an illusion has a long philosophical and scientific history This skeptical hypothesis can be traced back to antiquity with examples such as Zhuangzi's Butterfly Dream, I'm going to say that name. <laughs> the Indian Sounds philosophy good. of Maya and ancient Greek philosophers like Anaxarchus and Minimus. Monimus? Monimus, yeah. <laughs> Monimus, that might be Monimus. <laughs> Who likened existing things to a scene painting and believed them to resemble the impressions experienced in sleep or madness. Aztec philosophical texts theorized that the world was a painting or book written by the Teotl. Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil, criticized philosophers for seeking to find the true world behind the deceptive world of appearances, questioning why truth should be valued more than semblance. So kind of the idea, I guess, of, I guess, does it really matter that we understand the nature of our experiences as much as like the value of the experience itself. Yes. Always search for truth. Right. Like I kind of take this to be, well, probably like when first person shooter games like call of duty and stuff like that started to become popular and were playable online. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were a lot of, well, I know there were a lot of parents saying like, stop playing video games, go out and play with your friends. And it's like, I am playing mm -hmm. with my friends. Mm -hmm. Like my experiences, I mean, a kid wouldn't be saying this, but they, they're, if they could articulate it, they'd probably say, like, my experiences within this game with my friends are as valid and valuable as ones at the park or the pool or in any other, like, physical space. 
Yeah, that's kind of scary to me. <laughs> I, I don't. Dude, I I don't think it's the same because how what percentage of communication is nonverbal? That's true. That's true. And I'm not I'm not saying that they're like one for one substitutes. Right. But I know uh, what was it? Wolfenstein Enemy Territory came out in like 2002, 2004, somewhere in there. It was an online multiplayer that was free. It was really fun. Me and my friends would get on like Ventrilo because that was what was around before Discord. And we would play that. There were teams and uh, clans and stuff like that. And it was a lot of fun. Like I made friends on there. Some of my friends, you know, it's like, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while because, you know, my family moved from Missouri to Illinois. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's let's hop on a play. And so I have a lot of fond memories of that game. Well, I think it's better than not interacting at all. Right. You're not you're not just sitting in a room by yourself, even if it looks like you are. All right. Let's talk about Nick Bostrom's premise. Many science fiction works, as well as predictions by serious technologists and futurologists, foresee enormous amounts of computing power being available in the future. I don't think that's something that we can argue, right? I mean, that's just a fact. It's going to continue to improve. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Moore's Law isn't what it used to be, but even Moore revised that a long time ago. You know, the whole computing power essentially will double every year. It hasn't, but... Well, yeah, but for this theory to be viable, it can be an improvement of 0.0001% over the course of any amount of time. True. Given enough time, it will grow to a power level we can't imagine. Right. Assuming these predictions are accurate, future generations might use their super powerful computers to run detailed simulations of their ancestors or individuals similar to their ancestors. These computers would be so powerful that they could run multiple simulations. In theory, it could be almost unlimited simulations if there was enough computing power. If these simulated people are conscious, assuming the simulations are fine-grained enough and a widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct, then it is possible that the vast majority of minds like ours belong not to the original race, but to the simulated individuals created by the advanced descendants of an original race. So, if I'm running a simulation, the first place I'm going is ancient Egypt. And I would see how that all went down. I don't, I mean, I guess if you just run a simulation of mankind, that's a little different, but I don't see a lot of people being like, oh, well, let's see what Jay did on Cryptique for a couple of years. Let's <laughs> run that simulation. I think that in order for us, at least in the beginning, I think that we have to understand that they would probably be running simulations, not of mankind in general, but of specific and very interesting things. We don't go watch a movie on Grandma Jill feeding the geese at the park. We watch a movie on something like this or an action movie or a horror movie. So I Mm -hmm. don't know that they'd just be running simulations on everybody in the beginning. But what about his conclusion? If this is the case, it would be rational for us to think that we are more likely to be among the simulated minds rather than the original biological ones, just on a numbers basis. 
Therefore, if we don't believe that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we cannot justifiably believe that we will have descendants who will run numerous simulations of their ancestors. I don't know if we called this out before, but this is from the book Are You Living in a Computer Simulation that Nick Bostrom published in 2003. He seems to think it's almost a certainty that if it is possible for us to do this in the future, it has already happened and we are part of it. Right. There would basically be one timeline of originals and then every other timeline would be a simulation. Right. So we have the choice to believe, are we the originals and it is in our future or are we part of this simulation or these simulations? So Mm. uh, the simulation argument um, and see some of this is going to be kind of going back over what we've already talked about but you know if i get a bonus coin i'll take it in 2003 philosopher nick bostrom proposed a trilemma known as the simulation argument although the name suggests otherwise bostrom's simulation argument doesn't directly argue that humans live in a simulation instead it posits that one of three seemingly unlikely propositions is almost certainly true and I don't like the term seemingly unlikely. I think that seemingly unlikely is not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with possibilities here, right? Hmm. One, the fraction of human level civilizations that reach a post-human stage, that is one capable of running high fidelity ancestor simulations is very close to zero. So that's one belief that you can have is that they are not running simulations in the future. Tell us about the second one. The fraction of post-human civilizations that are interested in running simulations of their evolutionary history or variations thereof is very close to zero. Mm. So you see what he did there? So, yeah. I see where he's going with all this. (laughs) Okay, fine. So three, the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences that are living in a simulation is very close to one. And I guess by that he means that it's almost certain that this is taking place. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's a variety of reasons that, you know, people may not want to do this. They may in the future, you know, under a higher understanding, they might think, oh, well, it would be wrong for us to run a simulation where these people think that they're real, but they're not. That would be right. Or to create a, to create a world, if they're truly trying to simulate their own past, to create a world where they knew the world wars were going to happen again Mm -hmm. and the plague was going to happen again and all this, and all this suffering would Would be real. Yeah, and it would be real to the the simulated beings experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And it could be that they just have no interest in that. It could be, and theoretically at some point, somebody will want to run a simulation. I mean, you know, there's people that study the dumbest things and make it their life. You know what I mean? So eventually somebody will want to run this. But a majority of people could be like, you know what? I'm not looking at the past anymore. We can visit different planets. We can, you know, go to different, every place we've ever wanted to go. Why do we worry about how they suffered in the past? 
Okay, so the total number of simulated ancestors or sims would far exceed the total number of actual ancestors. And that's just what we talked about with the original timeline that we think we're on, as opposed to the many simulations. All right, what's next? Bostrom uses a form of anthropic reasoning to argue that if the third proposition is true and almost all people live in simulations, then it is highly likely that we are living in a simulation. He claims that his argument surpasses the classical ancient skeptical hypothesis because it presents empirical reasons to believe in the possibility of a certain disjunctive claim about the world. The third of these disjunctive propositions is that we are almost certainly living in a simulation. Consequently, Bostrom and others, such as David Chalmers, argue that the simulation hypothesis might be a metaphysical hypothesis rather than a skeptical one. Bostrom admits that he doesn't see a strong argument for any one of the three trilemma propositions being true. He notes that people who encounter the simulation argument often say, yes, I accept the argument, and it is obvious that possibility, whatever, is true. However, different people choose different possibilities as the most likely one. As a corollary to the trilemma, Bostrom states, unless we are now living in a simulation, our descendants will almost certainly never run an ancestor simulation. So that's interesting. I guess he's saying if we're not living in a, in a simulation right now, then it means they're never going to run any. Sure. So now we'll talk about criticisms of Bostrom's anthropic reasoning. Bostrom contends that if the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences that are living in a simulation is very close to one, it follows that humans probably live in a simulation. Some philosophers disagree, suggesting that perhaps sims do not have conscious experiences in the same way that unsimulated humans do, or that it can be self-evident to a human that they are human rather than a sim. Philosopher Barry Danton modifies Bostrom's trilemma, although I think that might be Dainton, <laughs> modifies Bostrom's trilemma by substituting neural ancestor simulations ranging from literal brains in a vat to far future humans experiencing high fidelity hallucinations of being their distant ancestors. So kind of like the experiences you have as the player in an Assassin's Creed game for Bostrom's ancestor simulations. I said that really strangely. It sounded like ancestor. <laughs> for Bostrom's... Tell us about your ancestors. <laughs> for Bostrom's ancestor simulations. He argues that every philosophical school of thought can agree that sufficiently advanced neural ancestor simulation experiences would be indistinguishable from non-simulated experiences. Even if high-fidelity computer sims are never conscious, Dainton's reasoning concludes that either the fraction of human-level civilizations that reach a post-human stage and are able and willing to run large numbers of neural ancestor simulations is close to zero, or possibly neural ancestor simulations exist. And one of the arguments is that civilization, as it advances, would be more likely to become extinct than it would be to reach this stage of technological advancement. Right. And it does seem like the more technology we have, the closer we come to destroying ourselves. The less we have, the more likely yep. we are to be destroyed by our environment. The more we have, the more likely it's us. <laughs> right. Exactly. Some scholars reject or are uninterested in anthropic reasoning, dismissing it as merely philosophical, unfalsifiable, or inherently unscientific. Some critics suggest that the simulation could be in its first generation, and all the simulated people that will one day be created do not yet exist. 
Cosmologist Sean M. Carroll contends that the simulation hypothesis leads to a contradiction. Assuming humans are typical and not capable of performing simulations contradicts the arguer's assumptions that it is easy for us to foresee that other civilizations can most likely perform simulations. I don't really see a conflict there. I mean, I, I think that you have to take the timeline into account, and Bostrom's timeline is basically infinite. So, I mean, it, it's logical to believe that in a million years, if there's some form of human anywhere in existence that they would be able to do this mm. so i mean that's kind of a cop out a little bit but you know it is what it is and it it is true physicist frank wilchek presents an empirical objection arguing that the universe's laws exhibit hidden complexity that is quote not used for anything end quote and are constrained by time and location these traits would be unnecessary and extraneous in a simulation Furthermore, he contends that the simulation argument is essentially, quote, begging the question due to the embarrassing question of the nature of the underlying reality where this universe is simulated. He asks, quote, if this is a simulated world, what is the substance it is simulated within and what are the laws governing, governing it, end quote. Critics argue that humans cannot be the ones simulated, as the simulation argument posits descendants running the simulations. In other words, the likelihood of humans living in a simulated universe is not independent of the prior probability assigned to the existence of other universes. Tell us what that means. That's a great question. <laughs> it seems like he might be suggesting that there are humans... Yeah, you know, possibility of like a multiverse with other humans in it. So your possibilities aren't just limited to these humans on this earth that we know about now. Tell us about the arguments within the trilemma against the simulation hypothesis. Some scholars accept the trilemma and argue that the first or second propositions are true, thus rendering the third proposition that humans live in a simulation false. Physicist Paul Davies uses Bostrom's trilemma as part of an argument against a near-infinite multiverse. This argument suggests that if a near-infinite multiverse existed, post-human civilizations would run ancestor simulations, leading to the untenable and scientifically self-defeating conclusion that humans live in a simulation. Therefore, existing multiverse theories are likely false. Unlike Bostrom and Chalmers, Davies considers the simulation hypothesis self-defeating. Okay, so I'm just going to say I think that we are the originals. I don't think that you can just punch a hole in this argument though i mean there's a lot of it that seems unquestionable right your boy elon musk says that the odds are over a billion to one that we're not living in a simulation mm -hmm. Some point out that there is currently no evidence of technology capable of creating a sufficiently high-fidelity ancestor simulation. Additionally, there is no proof that it is physically possible or feasible for a post-human civilization to create such a simulation. So for now, the first proposition must be considered true. Moreover, there are limits to computation. True, but I think that when you, have again, have the timeline of forever, it's hard to argue. Yeah, I've been watching... Uh, as much as Kim doesn't like it, the original Star Trek series. And there's so much technology in that that they just never thought would be possible, I think. Or, or mm -hmm. couldn't conceive of. Like, 
a lot of the view screens and monitors are very small they're clearly like tube based there's not you know there's nothing like a flat screen lcd or plasma panel i mean that wasn't that long ago 60 years ago (laughs) so there's a lot of technology that we probably can't conceive of right now that'll be real well absolutely and i mean if you if you give the timeline of forever and you don't think that you know our species or race or whatever will become extinct before then then you have to think there's probably going to be time travel at some point if it's an infinite infinite timeline and if you believe that then you almost have to believe that time travel already exists because people from the future would have come back and this is why we see some of these glitches in the matrix or you know photographs of people with an iphone at a you know rolling stone show in the 1950s or 1920s whenever they started (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that mainly it comes down to unless i'm just restating something you've already said that you know if we come to a point where if it's an inevitability that humans will eventually create simulations with conscious beings that are like them that those will also produce simulations with conscious beings like them and it'll just mean that there are i don't know a hundred trillion conscious human-like beings but only maybe five trillion of them are actual blood and you know blood flesh and bone humans so it's just one of those things where like your mathematical odds of being born one of the ones that's not in a simulation becomes lower and lower but I don't know. I I also agree with the idea that there's a lot of, like, complexity and odd behavior in the universe that would be probably not there. Mm -hmm. And this might be stuff that we're about to get into, but one of the things for it is probably, you know, these weird mathematical um, sort of coincidences that make life possible on Earth. You know, the same things that people would point to to say, like, it, it's logical to believe in some kind of creator because of the mm-hmm. way everything worked out. You know, the earth is in the perfect place. The sun and the moon are the kind of the perfect sizes for what they need to do to create the world that we have. That's very stable and all this Goldilocks zone. Yeah. But at the same time, you could just say in an infinite universe, when you do get a planet like this, life is inevitable on it. So who knows? Yeah. Well, and also, I think if you look at it as far as religions go, I mean, God is a creator. I mean, essentially, we are his creations and we're, you know, going through a timeline. So that's almost like saying that God is the master simulator. But let's talk about physicist Marcello Gleiser after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Anyway, Marcello objects to the idea that posthumans would have a reason to run simulated universes, stating, being so advanced, they would have collected enough knowledge about their past to have little interest in this kind of simulation, except for history buffs. So, I mean, that kind of shoots that down, I think. 
They may have virtual reality museums where they could experience the lives and tribulations of their ancestors. Do we ever do that? Like, do we ever go to, you know, Amish themed communities and churn butter? Yeah, or I think some of us Renaissance do. festivals, right. things like that. I mean, it's human nature. Reenactments. But Marcello says a full-fledged resource-consuming simulation of an entire universe sounds like a colossal waste of time. And he also points out that there is no plausible reason to stop at one level of simulation, potentially creating an infinite regress similar to the problem of the first cause. I think that he's saying that creating an infinite number is not likely. And I kind of argue against that. I think that you know, there's going to be simulations running simulations. So, all right. You want to tell us about John Wheeler? Sure. Did we talk about the problem of the first cause? Is that the first time we've mentioned that? Because mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to give a definition of it, an explanation. Uh, the problem of the first cause refers to a philosophical and theological issue concerning the origin of the universe and everything contained within it deals with the question of what caused everything to come into existence or what was the first cause that set off the chain of events leading to the current state of the universe um it's a there's a lot more to it but that's essentially it you probably could have guessed that from the name yeah it just is it just yeah just is man uh but then it In physics, John Wheeler was the first to observe the universe and its workings as the ebb and flow of information. Consequently, two views of the world emerged, one proposing that the universe is a quantum computer and the other suggesting that the system performing the simulation is distinct from the simulated universe. Dave Bacon, a quantum computing specialist, offers a critique of the first view. He argues that the notion of computation might simply be a byproduct of our age with computers, computation, and information theory influencing how we perceive our laws of physics. He also notes that the idea of computing arising from faulty components seems unlikely to exist as anything more than a platonic ideal. Furthermore, there is no evidence for the digitization that characterizes computers, nor are there any predictions made by those advocating this view that have been experimentally confirmed. I, I feel like they're kind, like a lot of these guys are just kind of saying, "Yeah, it's probably not it." You know, I mean, they have their their evidence, but I, I just again going to the timeline. I think if if he gave a timeline of a thousand years, then we could talk but with you know unlimited time you have the possibility of unlimited advancement in technology yeah. and certainly in computers yeah and then the reliability thing where he, where it mentions uh faulty components i think what it's talking about is that for everything to run perfectly those computers would have to run perfectly all the time yeah i don't i don't know that that's the case well, do we want to get into advocates? Your your boy Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a strong believer in the simulation hypothesis. In a podcast with Joe Rogan, he stated, "If you assume any rate of improvement at all, games will eventually be indistinguishable from reality." That's my best Elon That's Musk. That's not bad. He's you sound like a Bond villain. Although I guess so does he. And he probably is. Uh, So he's saying that it would be indistinguishable from reality. 
And that's scary. I hope he's wrong, but I don't know. I can't really argue against it. Yeah. And he also said it's most likely we're in a simulation. And in 2016, he said there's a one in billions chance we're based in reality. Boom. Mm. You want to tell us about your boy? Yeah. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson also supports the hypothesis, stating it in an NBC News interview that it is correct, giving better than 50-50 odds and adding, I wish I could summon a strong argument against it, but I can find none. However, in a recent interview with Chuck Nice on a YouTube episode of Star Talk, Tyson shares that friend J. Richard Gott, a professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton University, made him aware of a strong objection to the simulation hypothesis. The objection highlights that all hypothetical high-fidelity simulated universes share the ability to produce high-fidelity simulated universe. Anyway, given that our current world lacks this ability, it implies that we are either the real universe and therefore simulated universes have not yet been created, or we are the last in a very long chain of simulated universes, making the simulation hypothesis seem less likely. Regarding this objection, Tyson remarked, that changes my life. <laughs> that's your boy. That's, that's uh, boy. <laughs> I don't know. Where, where do you stand? Do you think we're the OGs? No, I think we probably are. Because, I mean, this would just be my opinion. Me being somebody probably hundreds of thousands of years before the ability to do something like this. I personally would doubt the usefulness of it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have so much that's unuseful now. Yeah, but I mean, if you believe in in things like, I mean, just like the, how much a small thing or coincidence can change the outcome of somebody's life. Yeah, if you think about the way that you met certain important people in your life, it was probably a chance thing. Like me meeting Kim was because I was friends with her cousin and her cousin, I, they were together at one point when I hung out with them. That was how we met. And it's it's like... <laughs> That sounds really bad. You're like her. When I met her and her cousin, they were together. Well, I mean, they just happened to be together. How brutal was this community? We met up. We met up for lunch, and she was like, "Oh, this is my cousin Kim. She's visiting." And I was like, "Hey," and that was it. And now everything else that that has happened has happened. And if just that one little change was there that we never met, my life would be totally different. Like the child that we're about to have wouldn't exist. You know what I mean? There's so much that would throw it off in a way that would not make it useful to see like, okay, how did ancient Egypt do this stuff? Or how did these people get through this sort of thing? Because the world would play out totally different. Well, what if the players throw it off? What if, what if the players throw it off? What if this simulation was supposed to happen this way, but you know, just one little thing changed, like you said. Yeah, these little chance encounters, maybe that's throwing things off a little bit. I mean, maybe we have the power to, you know, take reality, take life from this simulation and become something real. Interesting. That's yeah. very philosophical. I mean, it could have, I mean, that's essentially what happened in the Matrix, right? Sure. I mean, and I do have... I haven't seen it in 30 years. But. <laughs> I do have things that have happened that I've told you before that I felt like I was living in a very unconvincing matrix where mm-hmm. I, I told you about a bad business dealing I had recently. And a voice recorder would have been helpful during some of these meetings. <laughs> 
And I was thinking about that today and like, man, I had this one during college and grad school. I wonder where that is. And it just like, uh, like appeared. We're looking for something, something that Kim had lost. And I pulled this chair out from against the wall and there it is, you know, a a voice recorder that I haven't seen in 10 years, was just sitting there. It's really strange. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Old like lectures and stuff, but, and it's, I don't know. Strange things do happen like that. I need somebody's phone number and that person walks in the door or that person calls or texts me. Things like that happen, but I don't know that they're proof of a simulation. I think just, I don't know. I think there's a lot of other things. Like people tend to, or at least seem to know when other people are thinking about them or Mm -hmm. need something or whatever. You just get this like inkling every once in a while. Like, hey, I'm going to go check on this person, see if everything's cool. We can take over, man. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about how we test this hypothesis physically. A method to test one type of simulation hypothesis was proposed in 2012 in a joint paper by physicist Silas R. Bean from the University of Washington, Seattle, which is what it's called now, and Zore Davudi and Martin J. Savage from the University of Washington, Seattle, again. Assuming finite computational resources, the simulation of the universe would be performed by dividing the continuum space-time into a discrete set of points, potentially resulting in observable effects. What that means is you don't have to simulate the entire world all the time. You just have to simulate a certain amount of space around the simulated human and you know, whatever's beyond their senses doesn't have to be simulated except to another person. Now, I know that's how they run games, but to me that almost seems more difficult than just running everything at once. You know what I mean? Yeah, because then you'd have to have some way of figuring out how that environment should have changed or aged since the last time it was encountered by a simulated being. Yeah. Right? I would think so. But, I mean, that could explain things like um, Uparts, out-of-place artifacts, like where you find like a power drill buried in like, you know, sediment along with Iron Age tools. Yeah. Could just be the simulation screwed up. There you Although go. it seems like, I mean, we're, we're, we just said one of the objections was that a computer would have to run perfectly. Like yeah. it would have to involve no compute, no, no, what was it, no computation arising from faulty components or something like that. Well, there's also the fact that we're not perfect. You know, you say that they have to simulate how a a place is aged, but, I mean, our memories aren't perfect. So, you know, we see it as it is and assume that's reality. But that's deep, though. I don't know. I mean, this, this whole thing's really deep, but I don't think it's difficult to engage with it. Right. Several researchers proposed several experiments aimed at testing the simulation hypothesis in their paper, quote, on testing the simulation theory. In 2019, philosopher Preston Green suggested that it might be best not to find out if we're living in the simulation since discovering it to be true might end the simulation. And that would suck, but it would also suck because you'd have people just coming up and smacking you and being like, ah, simulation didn't really happen. (laughs) In addition to assessing the simulation hypothesis truth or falsehood, philosophers have used it to illustrate other philosophical problems, particularly in metaphysics and epistemology. 
David Chalmers has argued that simulated beings might wonder if their mental lives are governed by their environment's physics when, in fact, these mental lives are simulated separately and are not governed by the simulated physics. So essentially, your mind is run by one machine and the physical world by another. Chalmers claims that this might eventually lead them to find that their thoughts fail to be physically caused and argues that this means Cartesian dualism is not necessarily as problematic a philosophical view as commonly believed, though he does not endorse it. Totally. Tell us what Cartesian dualism is, or do you have a definition ready for that? Because I do. No, you go ahead. I mean, I have one. I just want to hear yours. (laughs) It's mind-body dualism, or a theory proposed by Descartes in the 17th century that says that there are two separate types of substances that are mental uh, or of the mind or physical. And according to this view, the mind and body are fundamentally different in nature and interact with each other to form a complete human being. He proposed that the mind is an immaterial, non-physical substance that is responsible for consciousness. Thoughts, emotions, blah, blah, blah. In contrast, the body is a material, physical substance that exists in space and is subject to the laws of physics. So basically, kind of like the idea that I sort of like, that the the brain is sort of like a receiver for consciousness. Mm -hmm. But that you have a soul and a body. Right, but that they're kind of more separate than we think. Okay. And, you know, it goes into yin and yang, but you want to try and find that balance between both and bring them closer together, I think. And that doesn't have anything to do with the uh, simulation theory. That's just, you know, something that I think we should all strive for is to become more whole, less fragmented, right? Mm The economist Robin Hansen, Robin argues that a self-interested occupant of a high-fidelity simulation should strive to be entertaining and praiseworthy to avoid being turned off or relegated to a non-conscious, low-fidelity part of the simulation. And to me, that sounds like a non-player character. And it's interesting because everybody is starved for attention, right? Yeah, this kind of makes... It means everybody, if they're self-interested, should be uh, TikTokers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody should be performing, putting a show on so you don't get ended. I will not put a show on for anybody, except for Cryptique fans, of course. Anyway, Hansen also speculates that someone aware they might be in a simulation could care less about others and live more for the present saying, quote, your motivation to save for retirement or help the poor in Ethiopia might be muted by realizing that you're in a simulation or that in your simulation, you will never retire and there is no Ethiopia. Well, I already know unless y'all start sharing these podcasts, I'm never going to retire and I'm not sure about Ethiopia. Hmm. What's next? Oh, the brain and the vat and parsimony. Skeptical arguments have historically played a role in the evolution of philosophical discussion, particularly in ontology, metaphysics, the theory of knowledge, and the philosophy of science. The fallibility of perception, knowledge, and thought has been made apparent using several arguments. Solipsist scenarios, a common ground of debate in these fields, are extreme cases that prompt these dilemmas for further discussion. Solipsist. Solip- solipsist. solipsist. Okay, here we go. 
In virtue of computational simplicity, achieving this last kind of simulation with equal resolution seems much more undemanding than assembling a super simulator that runs in complete reality, including multiple participants. If humanity was being simulated, as noted by Lorenzo Pieri, it is much more likely to be one of such brain-in-a-vat or solo players, as it is much easier to simulate the inputs to the brain than the full-blown reality. This probabilistic argument deferring to parsimony is based on the idea that if we randomly select the simulation, the likelihood of picking a given simulation is inversely correlated to the computational complexity of the simulation. And I could not agree more. Do you want to talk about science fiction themes? <laughs> After a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Science fiction has highlighted themes such as virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and computer gaming for more than 50 years. Jokester from 1956 by Isaac Asimov explores the idea that humor is actually a psychological study tool imposed from without by extraterrestrials studying mankind, similarly to how humans study mice. Simulacron 3 from 1964 by Daniel F. Galois. I'm going to say Galois, with an alternate Kayoui. title of Counterfeit World, tells the story of a virtual city developed as a computer simulation for market research purposes in which the simulated inhabitants possess consciousness, all but one of the inhabitants are unaware of the true nature of their world. Let's just jump to The Matrix. Okay. Everybody knows The Matrix, and it depicted a world in which intelligent robots enslaved humanity within a simulation set in the contemporary world. And I think that that's basically, I mean, when I hear simulation theory and I hear people talk about it, I mean, they basically just say it is the matrix. And I, I think that that kind of sums it up. And I think that people that have seen the film everybody's seen it right at least once well anyway I, I think that that maybe simplifies things a little bit and i don't know that we're talking about a robot enslaved civilization but in theory if you're in a simulation you're kind of at the whim of whoever's running you so now do you want to talk about your favorite show because this one's actually kind of kind of funny sure the 2014 episode of the animated sitcom rick and morty m night shamalians demonstrates a low quality <laughs> simulation that attempts to trap the two titular protagonists but because the operation is less realistic than typically operated reality it becomes obvious this implies one of two options for the hypothesis either our perceivable reality is an almost flawless and detailed and unnoticeably computed simulation that compares relatively highly or it's relatively minimal but reality is all one self would recognize and would have no comparative rival to differentiate between. So meaning you wouldn't know that the real world was more detailed than what we have. Right. Yeah. And, and we know that we have senses that are very limited. You know, our, our range of sight, hearing, I'm sure smell, you know, everything is limited. So there could be a much more vibrant you know, insane reality if we could 
somehow see everything in the light spectrum and we could hear super low frequencies and super high frequencies and that's why you know animals have a different reality really i mean if you've watched the shows where they show uh someone colorblind even you know that's a different reality and but i have great news you are going to learn matrix cheat codes in the after party ryan tell them what they need to know as always share us Share us with people you like, share us with people you don't like, share us with somebody you want to annoy, share us with somebody you'd rather not talk to at work. So you need to give them something to listen to. It's the best way for us to spread out and take over and dominate this particular simulation. You can always interact with us through social media at all the same places I gave above or at the you know top of the show. And you can email us. Give us feedback. Give us what you want to hear next at cryptypodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the Parabox link in the show notes. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>